All right, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. Read with me if you would. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Last week we started the book of Ecclesiastes, and to be clear, the strategy of the teacher or the preacher, in Hebrew the Koheleth, one who gathers a group of people so that they might listen. The strategy of the teacher is to undercut our false hopes and assumptions about life, and therefore our false aims and pursuits in life, so as to save you from a life of futility and meaninglessness, where you've been chasing after the wind. The opening 11 verses confronted, as we saw last week, our sense that our lives are about to reach a crescendo. I think this is a human phenomenon that we always believe that our lives are being clarified and strengthened, our vision crystallized, and we are about to reach this crescendo. And we talked about one of the most haunting Concepts, at least I've ever come across in my life, called deferred happiness syndrome, I shared with you last week. That is the common feeling that your life hasn't begun, that your present reality is a mere prelude to some idyllic future. This ideal is a mirage that will fade as you approach old age, revealing that the prelude you rushed through was in fact the one to your death. So humans tend to live, as deferred happiness syndrome points out, under the delusion that our lives are always building towards something great and our dreams will be actualized. The, teachers, the teacher, however, says our lives are vanity. That is, it's a vapor. Vanity does not necessarily mean meaningless as is popularly assumed. It means fleetingness. Vanity in the Hebrew, the word means it's, it's a vapor, or it's a breath, or it's smoke. And smoke or a vapor has a form, and then in a few seconds it dissipates and becomes nothing. Just in a few seconds. And that's what the preacher is saying about life. So, our life is not reaching a crescendo, per se. Our lives are a mist that quickly vanishes at dawn, like we sing, and all glory be to Christ. So this week, that was last week. This week, the question is, all right, so we have this one fleeting life, this one vanishing life. How can we fully enjoy this one fleeting life? vanishing life? How can we take it by the, the horns and actually embrace it and enjoy it for all it's worth? Um, has anyone ever tried to make oranges, orange juice with real oranges before? We had, we had something growing up in my house. It was this glass apparatus where you would cut an orange in half and squeeze the orange and the, and the juice would come out into this kind of reservoir and catch the, the juice and so you can make orange juice and I remember squeezing this with all I might to get all the juice out of this orange and I was always very disappointed about how much juice was actually produced by the orange. It took like, like eight oranges to get one glass of orange juice but um, when I have been studying this passage this week that's the, the vision that's constantly in my mind. As we go through this passage, you'll see the Koheleth squeezing life for all it's worth. 
trying to get all the juice out of life and being disappointed with the amount of juice that's actually produced, no matter how hard he squeezes. Um, so the question here is, in this passage, is a secular question. It's how can I, how can we squeeze every drop of experience or pleasure or success out of the life we have? How can we do that? How can we get the most out of our life under the sun? Well, the teacher writes as somebody who not only has asked that question himself, but somebody who has found the answer to that question and is going to report his findings to you. He applied himself, if you look at verse very closely, verse 13, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. This passage is him taking us on his pursuit to find ultimate satisfaction in life and to squeeze life for all it's worth. Now, in the opening paragraph I read, the teacher begins with a summary of his findings. Scholars, when they write papers, will write an abstract of their findings, kind of a summary statement of their findings, before they actually write the detailed paper, or before they actually give you the details of the paper. So the teacher begins with this abstract, or thesis statement, about his findings. And he says that the quest for ultimate satisfaction, just being up front, he says, it's a striving after wind. That is what he says in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all this vanity and a striving after wind. Now that phrase, striving after wind, is um, a figure of speech for a, something that cannot be found something that cannot be grasped. Chasing the wind, we might say, but you've seen the leaves blow on a windy day, and you, if you tried to run after the wind, you'd never actually be able to catch it and bottle it up and keep wind somewhere. That quest is going to lead to frustration and disappointment, and that is what the teacher is saying about the search for ultimate satisfaction in life. In verse 15 he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is probably an analogy for the fact that we are unable to manipulate life to our ultimate and desired ends. Um, you can't manipulate the world for your purposes. That's the conclusion he came to. So think about when you take the pieces of a puzzle. My, my son Wesley loves a good puzzle. What's great about a puzzle is once it's complete, once you have all the, the pieces in place and you put them there properly, a beautiful picture is created. A perfect picture is created. You just need to find the right pieces and put them in the right places. And that's all you need to do. And Kohelet is saying that is not what life is like. Life is not like finding the right pieces, putting them in the right places, and this beautiful picture will emerge. You cannot straighten what is crooked. And the amount of pieces that you'll have at the end cannot be counted can't be counted. So, how can you get the most out of life? His thesis statement up front is, you can't do that. You can't squeeze life for all it's worth. It's like trying to chase the wind and catch it in your hands. It's a vain pursuit that will lead to frustration. That's his thesis statement, and after giving us that summary... 
he is going to give us a, now a full, more detailed report of his findings. And we can break this into four different categories. Number one, he tries knowledge. Then he tries pleasure. He follows that with wise living. And finally, work. And he tries to find ultimate satisfaction and enjoyment in these four categories. So first, let's look at the first avenue he travels to find ultimate satisfaction. Knowledge. Verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has made has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The Koheleth, the first path path he chooses is the path I personally would have chosen, which is knowledge. A search for omniscience. Attending the best universities, getting the, the two PhDs, one in theology, one in philosophy. Oh, And his search, he concludes, has been a striving after wind. Why is that? He doesn't actually give us the answer why that is. He just reports that it has led to disillusionment in his life. I suspect because increased knowledge, first and foremost, gives you an increased awareness of what is unknown, of what you actually don't know. And this is common. This is why young men are more confident than old men. And unlearned men and women are more angular about their beliefs than learned men. Because many, very often, young men have not accrued knowledge enough to know what they don't know. So they're very confident. But the more and more you learn, and not, not to say I am extremely educated, but with the little education and learning I have, Many of you far beyond me have experienced this. I realize there are, there, is, there are a lot of questions that are not only unanswered, but that cannot be answered on this side of eternity. We were just talking on Wednesday, me, Mark, and Khalil. And one of the verses I was sharing with them that always rings in my heart is that the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that he's revealed have been given to us to obey them and to follow them. So the point is that wisdom is going to dispel illusions about where wisdom and knowledge can take you, ultimately. You'll never arrive, no matter how much learning you devote yourself to, you will never arrive at a point of omniscience. You'll never arrive at a point where you can take reality, you can perfectly conceptualize all of its part, parts, put them in order adequately, and live accordingly. That will never, ever happen. And so, you'll never be able to figure out life or reality perfectly. There is no frame of mind or intellectual scaffolding that is going to give you perfect, a perfect picture of reality. And this is why, I mean, we've discovered outer space, for goodness sakes, and it's only left more questions and more opportunities for research. It's amazing. Science is just a, a good example about how Finding more leads to more and more questions. So, not only though, here's the thing, not only is the quest an elusive one, the quest for knowledge, but it's also a bitter one, he says. He says, for in much wisdom is much, much vexation. 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why is that? Why would increased knowledge lead to vexation and sorrow? I came across a very, very interesting article in the Journal of Applied Psychology the other day. Not that I just read this journal for fun, but in researching, um, the title of the journal was, Does Educational Attainment Promote Job Satisfaction? Does Educational Attainment Promote Job Satisfaction? And they, every how many hundred students they followed in elite universities, and here is what they concluded. They said, we find that while better educated individuals enjoy greater job resources, that is income, job autonomy, and job variety, the better edu educated individuals also tend to incur greater job demands, work hours, task pressures, job intensity, and time urgency. On average, these demands are associated with increased job stress and decreased job satisfaction, largely offsetting the positive gains associated with greater resources. Interesting, huh? Now that's a general truth, and it's not, it's not true for every scholar or, or every learned person, but Increased knowledge has led to a vocation with increased demands, work hours, and stress. I think that's just a great example, or a great application, of how in much wisdom there can be much vexation. And he who increases knowledge actually can increase sorrow. So... The key to ultimate satisfaction, the preacher concludes, is not knowledge or education. You'll never arrive at a place of omniscience or ultimate knowing, and many who have drunk from the fountain of knowledge have found their lives drier than before. So knowledge is not the key to ultimate satisfaction. Well, after pursuing the avenue of the scholar, he pursues the avenue of the college freshman, and he then says, what about self-indulgence? What about pleasure? Read with me in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what good, what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. He is not simply here giving himself to wanton pleasure and disregard for meaning in life. He is giving himself to pleasure to find if it is the meaning of life. One commentator, Derek Kidner, puts it like this. He says, Derek Kidner points out that, notice he says, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. 
in verse 3. So he's going on this pursuit of pleasure, but his mind is still guiding him with wisdom. Um, Kidner says he is looking for something beyond pleasure and through it. For this is more than simple self-indulgence. It is a deliberate flight from rationality to get at some secret life to which reason may be blocking the way. So he's not just giving himself to a party spirit. He's actually seeing if the party spirit will give him himself an ultimate satisfaction. Now, I see, and maybe there are different ways to chop this up, but I see seven different tests of pleasure here. First of all, he tests laughter. He went to the comedy bars, and he tried to enjoy all the laughter he could enjoy. And the irony of life in the day-to-day. He had tried to enjoy wine and merriment. Just a little wine for his stomach's sake, and he enjoyed that for a while. And then he committed himself to folly. I, I think that just means doing what feels good. Following your heart, you know, just chasing the girl. Then he committed himself to lavish living quarters. This house is an amazing description. Gardens and parks, vineyards, trees, pools, water. We know if this is indeed Solomon, which I I think this is intended to be the voice of Solomon for us, that Solomon brought in um, animals from all over the world. He had apes and peacocks. Imagine, imagine what that temple must have looked like. That must have been quite a sight. So he devotes himself to living lavishly. Derek Kidner again says, he is creating for himself a secular Garden of Eden. That's exactly what it seems like. And so he also got servants for himself to ease his life and to have uh, male and female servants do for him whatever he pleased. And then he got all the possessions he could get, gold and treasure, more than the kings and, and provinces. And then he indulged himself in sex with many concubines. What is his conclusion about this whole project? You see that in verses 9 through 11. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's a striving after wind. He had everything the secular mind could ever want. Anything the flesh and lust of the heart could ever want or desire. And he found himself lacking satisfaction. Isn't it interesting that we find emptiness in the strangest places? We find emptiness, it seems to be almost consistently in the largest houses furnished with the most expensive and most exquisite pieces of furniture. It seems to be that the most wealthy who have chased after these things are the most empty. Jim Carrey, who has proven himself to be one of the most bizarre humans to exist in the world, said this, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it is not the answer. 
Now, I'm not sure what the it he is referring to is, but even an actor who has amounted millions and millions of dollars has come away from that whole project unsatisfied and disillusioned, just like Kohelet. So it's not in pleasure. But what about, what about wise living? What about applying myself to get things done in the world and live according to reality? Well, he tries then the mastery of wise living in verse 12. He says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than there is darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So here he's saying, I've said so far that all is vanity, but actually wisdom is better than foolishness when it comes down to living. So he would agree, he would agree with the Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 3 through 6 is a great example of how wisdom leads to good results in life. It says, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By wisdom the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war. And in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. So here's what wisdom could do. It can help you build a house. And it can actually help you get and maintain wealth. Which, and wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. People who have money can do a lot of good things with it. And many have. So we're not demonizing saving for retirement, storing up a, uh, an account for your children. Those are wise and good and righteous things to do. Setting your, a, a good foundation for your family, that's wise. And wisdom can help you do that. Wisdom furnishes rooms. In fact, in Proverbs it says, wisdom can win wars. So wisdom is good. But I'm not preaching Proverbs. I'm preaching Ecclesiastes, and his point here is that although wisdom is useful, and it is, he found the wise life, even the wise life, grieved him. Why is that? It grieves him because wisdom is only useful for people who are alive. So he says in verse 14b, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. <clears throat> For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have forgotten, been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So, yes, wisdom can lead to a good life, and I believe it does, and it can. Yet, it can't grant you immortality, and that's what's frustrating him. That's the fact that led him to despair and hate the day-to-day -day life. Now, step back for a minute. Is the teacher being dramatic? I mean, is he, does he just need to calm down for a minute? Take a small vacation. Take a walk. See, it's a beautiful day outside. Look at the sun. Does, does he need to just 
step back and relax. And aren't there more important things to think about and get on with in life, you might say? Koheleth is a man who is concerned with ultimate things only. He's a philosopher. He is a, he is a theistic existentialist, it seems. He is only concerned with questions about meaning, ultimate satisfaction, what happens when I die, why am I here? Those are the kinds of questions he's concerned with. And many philosophers go into that avenue of investigation because they have the same kind of ultimate concerns and questions. One of these was Blaise Pascal, and the, he has a famous book that was put together after he died called His Pensees, His Thoughts. And um, it's basically his notes on life and thinking and reality and death and the existence of God. I think it looks like he was trying to create a book, but he died before he could finish it. So we have these scattered thoughts. But... Um, in one section, Pascal finds it curious that people are indifferent to their loss of their entire being at death, while at the same time, they seem very concerned about trivial things in life. Here's what he writes. He says, they fear the most trifling things, foresee and feel them. And the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that when he is going to die, he is going to lose everything at death. But he feels neither anxiety nor emotion about it. He says, it is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest thing. So pa Pascal feels what the Koheleth is saying. He feels Ecclesiastes is a book that makes you feel more than any other canonical book, it seems. He wants you to feel the, the vapor of life. He wants you to feel the emptiness of toil. So he despairs of life itself because all its endeavors and all of its aims, in the end, it's just a striving after wind. And you can't catch it and you can't manipulate life to your own end so finally the last thing he explores is hard work and he says so I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to a man who comes after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool so even with my legacy, someone else is going to have this legacy. All, all, of the, all of the work, I mean, all the work we put into in our jobs, that you put into your, in your jobs, someone else is going to have that position someday and mess it up entirely. If the Lord allows Church of the Vine to tarry long enough, I will not be the pastor of this church someday. Yet he will, um, he says, where are we here? Verse 19. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. That is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. He's lamenting the fact that our wealth does not extend beyond the grave. All our wealth, all our trophies, our attainments will be transferred to someone else and we will be forgotten in the process. I read a story about a man who, a very successful businessman whose house was lined with plaques. I think he was a salesman, so he constantly beating record sales. And his house was lined with plaques, and he was a great entrepreneur, and so the state would constantly lavish him with gifts and plaques and trophies, and his house was almost like walking into a shrine of his accomplishments. And the writer who was recounting this said that this man got cancer, and died, and his family was wondering what to do with all these trophies and plaques. All these wooden trophies and plaques. They realized their neighbor, a young kid who was getting into woodworking, 18 years old, and so they decided to give him all the plaques so that he could use them to practice woodworking. And that is what where all of his trophies and all of his plaques and all of his testaments to his success went to an amateur woodworker's basement. That is what frustrates Kohalath here. And so then he reflects finally on the prospect of laboring hard your whole life and never enjoying it. What has a man from which all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. The hard worker who's got the degree gone into a job with extreme demands on him, works 80 hours a week, commutes three hours, and then even when he puts his head on the pillow at night, is stressed because of the day and the new day about to come. And then he wakes up and has to do it again. And he spends all his life doing that thing. Kohala says that is vanity and a striving after wind. So where can we find enjoyment in life? Where can we find value and ultimate satisfaction in life? Kohala's conclusion is this. We find enjoyment in life in the humble and simple things that he has given, that God has given to us. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He's not saying eat and drink for tomorrow you die. He's not saying, one author said, he's not saying eat and drink because that's all there is. He's saying eat and drink because that's what there is. That's what God has given you. He's given you simple, humble pleasures. He's given you daily bread. So enjoy those things. And he says this is from the hand of God. The ability to enjoy those simple pleasures in life that God has given you is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. It's to the sinner that he has given, us, given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. 
This is also vanity and a striving after wind. So it seems Kohelet is saying that the ability to eat and drink and enjoy comes from the hand of God. So what's his ultimate conclusion? Let's ask the question again. How can we squeeze life for all it's worth? That was our starting question. How can we, how can we get the most out of life? How can we take life by the horns and just own it? Koheleth is saying, life is not to be mastered. Life is to be received from God. And in that reception, there will be great joy. So again, the strategy of Ecclesiastes is to save you from a life of futility by undercutting our misguided aims and hopes. The person who seeks every experience of pleasure, who endlessly aligns himself with some ideal vision of the future, is ultimately striving after wind and chasing what cannot be caught, he says. That quest is going to lead for, to disappointment. The key, he says, to enjoying everything is not squeezing life for all it's worth, but receiving life that, the God, that God has given you and receiving it as a gift. And in that shift of mind, in that perspective, you can cultivate a disposition of appreciation for what is around you. So, another word for what Koheleth is saying is contentment. The key to enjoying life, he says, is not to look at everything that God has not given you. It's rather to fix your gaze on those things that God has given you. And look at them with gratitude. And happiness. <laughs> you two are very cute. You know that? <laughs> as, I, as I'm saying, look at the things God has given you. Ryan and Shana both looked at each other. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that's exactly what Koheleth is talking about. Look at your beautiful wife that God has given to you. Or your handsome husband that God has given to you. That's your companion. And that's a blessed thing. Your children who cause you great pain and anxiety, but great joy and gladness. You've got to see grow up, and you will continue to see them grow up. And we can pray for them and thank God for them and enjoy the fact that God has given us quiver arrows in our quiver. I was um, at a barbecue with my brother the other, other day with some people um, from my church, my former church, Bread of Life, who I have known for a long, long time. Old men and women that I've known for a long, long time. I was, saying, I was, I was talking to my brother about this kind of phenomenon that we're the human predicament is constantly wanting more, constantly wanting what God has, has not given to us. And so many people, I think, have this been in, inundated with a hustle culture that brings them to a point of constantly trying to find a new, the next group to get in with. And I said, look, look around us. There are people here at this barbecue that we have known for 30 years. That is something to be embraced and appreciated. And those people are the ones that God has placed in our life to be loved, fellowshiped with, and enjoyed. Now, look at our church here. 
Imagine, imagine if in 30 to 40 years we're old and hunched over, we will have walked through life with each other. That would be a beautiful thing. Some of you will be real old. You'll be like 120. We'll have to like wheel you into church. You know. But it's that kind of thing. A few weeks ago, I was at the dinner table with a couple, passionately discussing and debating theology. And I, I actually uh, had an out-of-body experience where I kind of zoomed out and I almost, I felt like I could see us above the <laughs> table. I felt like this is such a beautiful thing that the people of God, eternal beings, are discussing God's revelation under the sun. One, one day we'll, we'll know fully but it was just, it was a moment of clarity that no matter what, what the debate is about and what we're passionately arguing in good nature, we are, we are eternal souls enjoying one another's company, if not zealously. And that's a beautiful thing. So... I think you could, you could apply this to your own life and in the things God has given you. Now, some of you are saying, some of you are saying even now, yeah, but the examples you just gave, Pastor, are the things I don't have. And do you see what you're doing? You're doing the very thing that Kohelis says not to do. You're looking at what God has not given you. And you're striving after wind. Rather than appreciating those things that God has given you. Start there. Start there. Forget about my example of husbands and wives and children. What else, whatever else I said. Start with what God has given you. And cultivate that kind of a gratitude based on those things. I'm not promising God's going to give you more. But contentment and joy is found in the humble and simple, not in the more and the out there. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was um, not a Christian, he was actually the anti-Christian, um, he said something very profound, and I think he's absolutely right. He said that all joy desires eternity. All joy desires eternity. That is true. Every relationship, every taste, every running high, every thrill is just a taste of what we wish could be eternal. And so, what, what all, what all our, our hopes and dreams are set on is the kingdom. I say this to Nidia all the time. You are desiring the kingdom. Nidia always has a dream of a beautiful backyard with weeping willows and a long wooden table and us and the people we love eating at this long wooden table together and enjoying one another's company with, with the globe lights over our heads as the kids play in an open field in the night, catching fireflies. And I, I say that is desiring the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying we can't do that one day, but that taste is a foretaste of the banquet hall of God's glory. Amen. Your heart will be restless until you find rest in him. Mm. What's further is you will not find ultimate rest in him 
under the sun. You'll find it on the other side of eternity. Paul says, now we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but then face to face. And I want to add to that and say, now we desire in part, and we hope for in part, but then face to face with God and the Son, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that joy that we only tasted, that hope that we longed for will be fully realized. Now, this is exactly what Jesus promises. He said to the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So you drink of pleasure, you drink of success, you drink of wisdom, of ease of life, you will be thirsty again. That's exactly what Kohala said. It's all vanity. It's a vapor. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus promising? Ultimate ultimate satisfaction in him and through him and because of him ultimate satisfaction so brothers and sisters let us never pursue a life of futility by setting our hopes if on a bunch of if onlys or if I just had that house that I wanted, or if I just had the perfect spouse, if I didn't have this physical ailment, if only I could arrange the puzzle pieces of my life, there would be a perfect picture. Vanity. Don't, don't strive after wind, brother and sister. Rather, start with what God has given to you. Enjoy it. Appreciate the life God has given to you. And know that on this side of eternity, the river will always run dry. But the water that Christ gives, even now, is welling up to eternal life and ultimate satisfaction. Let's close in a word of prayer.